welcome to Interventions, the Intellectual History Podcast. My name is Valentina Mann. And my name is Charlotte Johann. And today we are talking to Dr. Emily Jones. Dr. Emily Jones is the Mark Kaplanov Research Fellow in History at Pembroke College. She came to Cambridge after completing a degree in politics and modern history at the University of Manchester and an MST and DPhil in history at Exeter College, University of Oxford. Her first book, Edmund Burke and the Invention of Modern Conservatism and Intellectual History, 1830 to 1914, was published this year with Oxford University Press. So I'd like to begin with a question about your intellectual biography. When and how did you first come to the study of intellectual history? By accident. In my second year as an undergraduate, I was supposed to do a compulsory module on economic history. But a couple of weeks before the term was supposed to start, the person got ill and had to cancel the teaching for that term. So the people who were signed up to child labour in 19th century Britain had to choose another course based on what still had spaces left. So I thought, hmm, this course sounds interesting. And uh, so and the course was called European Intellectual History from Rousseau to Freud. So, so two weeks later, I kind of started on this course and I just loved it because I did a history and politics degree and it was just kind of combined those interests like exceedingly well. And then in my, uh, in my third year, I decided to specialize in intellectual history courses. So I did political thought of the French Revolution course. I did one on the kind of intellectual culture of European fantasy Eckler to about 1940. And I did my thesis on conceptions of liberty in 19th century Britain. So basically, I was sold after that course. <laughs> And when exactly did you realize that you wanted to pursue an academic career? I'm not sure that it ever became kind of a conscious thing. You know, when I was younger, I thought I wanted to be a journalist and I was going to do an English literature degree. But then I had some really amazing history teachers in sixth form and that kind of put me on the historical path. And then it was really after kind of doing that second half of my second year of an undergraduate, I became very interested in doing a master's and doing a PhD. And then once I was, you know, once I had got into that, I just thought, yeah, this is something I really enjoy. Like I like the research, I like the teaching. This is something that, you know, if you'd have asked me when I was 13 year years old, I would have never ever dreamed that this was something I'd be interested in doing. But I'm really enjoying it. I, I would kind of, I've, I've just really enjoyed myself, you know, since that kind of second half of undergraduate and I've just carried on doing what I've enjoyed doing. You have studied in three different places, Manchester, Oxford, and now Cambridge. So what varieties of intellectual history have you encountered? So when I was at Manchester, there was a kind of, it was very much about intellectual history broadly conceived. So the course that I did in my second year, we studied Darwin, we studied Freud alongside Marx, Rousseau, etc. And then when I decided to do my master's and my DPhil at Oxford, Oxford was a kind of a really great hub of 19th century intellectual history, very broadly conceived. So people who worked on, you know, religious thought, historiography, as well as political ideas. And I think 
that coming to Cambridge, it's very, it seems like we do do the intellectual history here, but you know, it's still very much political thought and intellectual history. So if you think of even John Robertson's introduction to this year's Seeley lectures, he kind of commented on how the focus of a lot of Cambridge historians has been on the state. And so I think that's probably the most noticeable difference between Manchester and Oxford and, and Cambridge. You recently published your PhD dissertation as a monograph entitled Edmund Burke and the Invention of Modern Conservatism and Intellectual History. Could you briefly tell us when and how you became interested in Burke and summarize the story that you tell in the book? Once again, everything goes back to this second year intellectual history course. In the second week, the theme was conservatism and the set text was Burke. And I was not expecting to be to become suddenly very interested in the founder of conservatism. But I just found the lecture really interesting because the kind of the vagueness of some of the terms that were used to describe conservatism were emphasized you know these ideas of organic growth hostility to revolutionary change believing in the importance of things like tradition history religion property order to society and to politics and I, I remember sat there thinking in my head I wonder how many people are actually so revolutionary that you know that they would disagree with some with some of these things And then I found out that Burke hadn't been a conservative and the word conservative wasn't used in the way that we use it today, even by the time that he died. I just became very interested in that. I, I remember being sat on the floor of the library reading these books on Burke and just thinking that they were much more polemical than the text that I'd read the previous week for Rousseau. And I found that really interesting. And I just, I think I just did a bit of personal research and found out that Burke had been a Whig. He'd had lots of liberal admirers in the 19th century. And that just got me thinking about his reception more broadly and about reception of key thinkers more generally. That turned into a master's thesis, which then turned into the DPhil thesis, and then which is now the book. And really the, the key question at the heart of that is how do you go from the historical Burke and then the Burke that you have at the beginning of the 19th century, who was someone who was deemed to be politically inconsistent. So he was a, he was a Whig, he, well, he'd been a kind of a key mouthpiece for the Whig party, but he would then cross the floor over the French Revolution. He was seen as being inconsistent and possibly mad. He was Irish. He spoke for so long that people called him a dinner bell. He had Catholic connections, which were problematic at the time, to by 1914, and that's when the book stops, being seen by academics, by politicians, being taught in schools as the founder of a body of thought, a consistent body of thought called conservatism, which was then being used by capital C conservatives who were using him in their writings and speeches. So that's the story that the book tells. And I do this, first of all, by dealing with how the problems with Burke were dealt with by people kind of as you go into the middle to the later part of the 19th century. So the Irishness, the Catholicism, issues with his party political affiliation. And then the second half of the book starts to think more about the quite active 
critical recovery that happens from people who who were just a new generation of people who, you know, have different intellectual and political concerns and become interested in Burke as someone who they thought was a consistent figure whose consistency you could you could show. And more than this, that he was an important figure that should be considered to be one of the kind of great Anglophone political thinkers. And then what happens once you have a kind of increasing realisation of Burke's consistency and, and importance is then he becomes relevant, so politically relevant to the Irish Home Rule debates, which happen from 1886. And during these debates, he becomes basically categorised as a proto-liberal unionist. So not only does he become seen as someone with a consistent body of thought, which is increasingly being categorized as small c conservative he then basically gets a relevant party political affiliation and as the liberal unionists become closer allies with the conservatives you know you don't have to wait too much longer kind of into the edwardian period where you get conservatives who start rewriting their definitions of what it means to be a conservative which go back to the french revolution and then go back to burke As you mentioned, in the book, you do not focus on the historical Burke, but on the reception of his writings. And as you just outlined, part of your argument is that he was, in a way, actively constructed as a coherent political thinker. So do you think that reception is necessarily construction? And could you speak a bit to the relationship between those two? Yeah, I mean, I think that generally, yes. I think that texts are always interpreted and I think particularly you know from the moment when someone dies historical figures become interpreted and reinterpreted and so I think that you know all reception histories are all are about construction but I think there's a way in which I think there's a way in which historians have to evaluate so not all texts are equal So on the one hand, you could say, yes, of course, all texts are kind of offering an interpretation or a reading of a particular text or a particular thinker or figure or politician or whoever. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that all texts or all reinterpretations or interpretations are equal in terms of their significance, in terms of their reach. And it's the historian's job to kind of qualitatively assess the significance and the reach of those texts. The book could have been a reception history about every single thing that people said in the 19th century about Burke in Britain and Ireland, but I don't think that would have been very interesting. I think that the historian's job is to then, you know, evaluate the interpretations and to offer an analysis on, you know, which interpretations were important, which interpretations ended up being not just published in high elite publications, but also became, you know, were used by politicians, were, were put in these cheap editions, were put in school books. And in a sense, which interpretations stuck? You do a very detailed reconstruction of an intellectual and political British tradition. 
every construction that is very sensitive to the place of Ireland in these debates. Much attention has recently been paid to the global or international dimension of intellectual history. And in the case of Britain particularly, the focus has been on imperial history in the British Empire. Could you talk a bit more about how you think your work fits into this broader framework? So so the book the book is primarily, as you say, focused on his British and Irish reception um, and how it's in this context where he is first canonized in an Anglophone sense as the founder of conservatism. And I think in terms of a more transnational transnational uh, perspective, it's clear that if you look at his European reception, it's quite different because it's much easier to immediately read Burke through his texts rather than through the lived experience of him as an Irishman, as a Whig politician in a British parliament where people had, you know, active experience of being bored by his speeches, of watching him slam his dagger, you know, his dagger down during, you know, parliamentary debates. And, you know, so, for example, I mean, Jonathan Green will be able to tell you more about the, the German reception than me. But, you know, they had the um, on the sublime and beautiful and then there was reflections so that, you know, the, it's not necessarily the same material that's being um, received as well. And particularly um, the Catholicism associated with Burke is not so much of a problem. Um, with you know his French admirers, for example, whereas in an Ang in Anglican England, he can't be a Tory in the early part of the 19th century. Um, well, he well he has he has Tory admirers among the pro-Catholic Tories, but it's very problematic for for someone who was a Whig who believed in Catholic relief with Catholic con connections to be easily slotted into a kind of Tory Anglican mould compared to a kind of Catholic continental conservatism, for example. Um, in his own work, he obviously saw his Indian writings and speeches and the, the kind of the failed impeachment of the Governor General of India, Warren Hastings, as his, import, his, as his most important work. Uh, but I don't think that this is what people uh, in Britain thoughts and if you look at the uh the the selected editions of burke's works that are published in this period the most popular texts are the thoughts on the cause of the present discontents which uh which is an attack on royal prerogative the american speeches uh which in a way are again kind of associated with with burke's views on empire and conciliation and these kind of things and the French writings, so predominant, predominantly the the reflections on the French on the revolution in France, but also the appeal from the new to the old Whigs. So, what you can see, what you do see in terms of the effect, well, the kind of the relationship that people see between Burke and Empire in this period is predominantly kind of moral and ethical rather than political. So there's a there's a bipartisan appreciation of Burke which covers a few things. So one of which is his, his is his eloquence. So people kind of universally admire his rhetoric, 
his style. People also admire his constitutional developmental writings about how the British constitution developed. And people are also broadly supportive of the view that after his impeachment of attempted impeachment of Hastings, this then changed some sort of uh, the the rationale and the beliefs of you know imperial statesmanship. So there was a kind of like widespread commentary that at, that kind of attributed um, the post Burke imperial like view of imperial statesmanship to kind of being a bit more ethical and a bit more moral in its tone. Whether that's true or not is, you know, a different issue. But, you know, rhetorically and intellectually, people saw people saw Burke as having um, a significant impact on the ethics of imperial statesmanship. And because of his role in the in the impeachment uh, trial and also what I've just been speaking about, he then features prominently in Indian civil service examinations later um, later in the century. He is taught, he is taught kind of, you know, around, around the empire. There are scholars who go out to, for example, Indian colleges who are obviously teaching Burke and produce school textbooks and cheap editions for their students to use. Um, the the writings and reviews that come out, um, sorry, the writings about Burke that are produced in this context are also then read and reviewed in America. So you can see lots of these writings reviewed in kind of uh, American journals as well as periodicals and things. And so there's obviously, these texts don't just exist in a British context, but they are produced they're produced in a british context but they have a kind of wider transnational appeal but also a kind of there's there's obviously also uh readership into the empire as well the last chapter of your book explores the role that education played in canonizing burke as the founder of modern conservatism so to broaden this a bit, what do you think is the relationship between education and canonization today? So I think it's very close, like it was at the beginning of the 20th century, which is the last the last chapter of the book about how Burke is how Burke is taught. And I think that your early years up to, you know, young adulthood are extremely intellectually and personally formative. And it's not always positive and it's not, so it's not as in, you know, I mean, I'm not sure everyone who studied Shakespeare in school has a kind of long lasting love of Shakespeare, but it does shape your idea. It's not necessarily that everyone who was taught about Burke's conservatism in school went away with a kind of deep understanding of Burke's conservatism, but you do still take away general impressions, very basic introductions to people and, you know, what they stand for. And kind of more than that, I think you take away ideas and conceptions of what kind of person is a famous writer or an important historical figure. And that's why you can see still 
big debates about curricula, whether it's in universities, where it's in schools. And these are questions about difficulty. You know, I mean, are these texts hard enough? Are they classics? Are they stretching students? But also about whether they're interesting and appealing to students who are, you know, coming from different demographics, as well as, and this was a case, you know, for the civic universities at the end of the 19th century, as, you know, as much as it is in secondary schools today. And also, you know, these questions of representativeness, which is connected to the demographic issue as well. Do we want canons that try to bring in, you know, people of colour, women, and kind of maybe try and rethink the categorization or like, you know, the qualities that we believe are canonical people? The reason why it's so fraught is because it's obviously seen that the that these years are, are very important in forming people's opinions and you know ideas about the world who they can be what they can aspire towards and I think that so for example and, and I and I don't think like you know political identities I don't think it's static these things can be changed and worked and adapted so for example at the end of my book one of the really interesting things about the beginnings of early English literature courses is the emphasis that's placed on non-fiction prose which means that Burke as an as a very eloquent you know rhetorical political writer has an extraordinarily kind of premier league status in English literature courses like with Shakespeare and Chaucer and at some point in the 20th century I don't know when this was we stopped being interested in teaching non-fiction prose in English literature courses and in curricula in the way that happened at the beginning of the 20th century. You know, I did poetry, I did drama, I did prose fiction, but I never studied, you know, I did creative travel writing, but there was no, you know, Burke was definitely not canonised with, you know, Shakespeare, Chaucer anymore. So canons, canons can change as well. The category of conservatism receives ever more attention and the labels of left and right, especially in the light of recent political developments in the US and the UK, has moved into the spotlight, so to speak. What do you think can intellectual history bring to debates on political categories and identities today? I think that the first thing to say is that Properly historicized political traditions. So I don't like the word ideologies. I like, tradi I like traditions. So properly historicized political traditions, they're not just a kind of antiquarian way of kind of complicating our understanding of the history of thought. But I think that they also offer us a tool that helps us to understand the way in which ideas are adapted. So a kind of critical tool for thinking about the present as well and how politicians and how writers, you know, start adapting people like Burke, who kind of half featured indirectly in the last Conservative Manifesto, the, you know, Nick Timothy's interest in Joseph Chamberlain, uh, These people, people still, people are still referencing and still trying to create genealogies that situate present day thinking in historical, uh, with historical genealogies. So I think if we can understand how these traditions develop, develop and change, then it helps us kind of think about how, you know, when people do reference, you know, past, past figures or past ideas, um, 
you know, what are they doing it for? Are they trying to legitimate things that are actually quite novel or are they just trying to kind of generally um, use it as a way of legitimating themselves uh, and, you know, where they stand within the Conservative Party or the Liberal Party or the Labour Party? And, And I think... And so in a sense, what I, you know, hope that the book shows is that by understanding the ways in which um, Burke is kind of invented as a conservative shows us actually the ways in which conservatism as a political tradition is not something that has just existed over the whole of time, but something that was actively and sometimes indirectly constructed over quite a long period of time. So we can't just talk about the period from the French Revolution, at least in this context, as just being a kind of age of ideologies in which, um, you know, the various forces of liberalism, conservatism and socialism kind of battled in the air uh, and actually gives agency to people you know whether they're school teachers or whether they're politicians or whether they're academics who are all involved in kind of a way of um interpreting and interpreting and kind of pushing uh, the past through new molds to suit new purposes and we have one final question uh, which is simply what's your next project My next project focuses more specifically on the period between 1885 and 1914. And I'm looking at the developments in conservative thought more generally. So this period was very, very important because for Burke because this was when he be, he is, you know, turned into a, a liberal unionist. It's when academics start systematizing his thought. It's when in the Edwardian constitutional crisis, conservatives start calling him the founder of conservatism. But actually, this is part of a kind of broader development in conservative thinking, which becomes increasingly interested in writing various texts, so books, articles, public, there's published speeches, pamphlets, which are all interested in defining what it means to be a conservative at the turn of the 20th century. So in a context where people really feel that things are changing in terms of the international context, you know, competition from Germany and the USA, and then internally with the rise of the trade union and labor movement, you know, new women cycling around, demanding the vote, and a new liberalism kind of beginning to talk about social reform um, and in the increased kind of role of the state. So you have conservatives who are writing these texts to deal with some of these new problems. And lots of them use Burke, but actually the texts do much more than that. There's a lot more writing that doesn't just focus on Burke. So what I'm interested in looking at, basically what conservatives are trying to do in terms of redefining their own identity at the turn of the 20th century in order to meet some of what they perceive to be these new problems, whether it's to do with social reform, or at the moment I'm looking at constitutional changes being proposed by conservatives and unionists who 
want to defend and maintain the constitution as they've always done, but are trying to be proactive in how they do that. So proposing, for example, a women's chamber in parliament that would advise advise the men, but would be on women's issues, so-called. So kind of social reform, education, which would increase the representation of women without changing the existing constitutional settlement. And, you know, equally reforming the composition of the House of Lords. So being very willing to dramatically reduce the hereditary peerage and bringing in perhaps elected members, people from unrepresented interests, because fundamentally what they would want to preserve was the powers of the second chamber. And then related to that was, you know, conservative interest in the referendum, which was then seen as a kind of possible way to mediate and avoid gridlock between two chambers of of equal power. So you get some quite interesting writing by conservatives and unionists who are trying to maintain the constitution, but they're doing it actually in 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 a much more constructive way than I think has been written about in the past or has been has been realized and it's intellectual i think the lots of conservative histories are biographical political but i think that there's an intellectual layer that we can add on top of that and that's what i'd like to do with this new project that's it for today we'll be back soon with the next episode of interventions the intellectual history podcast Emily, thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you very much for having me.